This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. May be seated. Are, uh, are we doing mid-high today? Jamie here? Okay. Kids, if you're leaving, you are dismissed. Go give somebody a hard time for me. Extra snacks to whoever sits in the hall. I mean, listens to their teacher. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we just sang, we come now to adore and worship and praise Christ the King. So my prayer, Lord, is that you would reveal him once again in your word, that you would show us the majesty of your grace and love and mercy. Show us your power and your authority. Father, soften our hearts and open our ears to hear once again the message of grace that has saved us. Father, do this so that Jesus Christ might be praised. So it's in his name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Is there anyone in here brave enough to admit you got to run an errand this afternoon to buy a present? Okay, for those of you who did raise your hand and for the liars, CVS is open. Walmart is open. We're going to be in John chapter 3 this morning if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. But we're going to take a quick yet important detour before we get there. Many of you will know the answer to this question, but what's the purpose of the Old Testament? I mean, why do we need all of these stories about who begat who and where, temple, where candles go in the temple, you know, sleepovers with lions? Why do we need to know that? What, what is the point of the Old Testament? Well, if you've been coming to this church for a while, uh, you'll know that the purpose of the Old Testament is, is that's what God thought we needed to know in order to even have a chance of understanding who Jesus is. The Old Testament is, is what God thought we needed to know in order to understand who Jesus is. We needed to know about kings so we could understand the king. We needed to, we needed to know about priests and sacrifices so we could understand our great high priest and his sacrifice. We needed to know about how we needed to see mankind fail enough times to know that we needed help. Oftentimes you'll hear us say here that the Old Testament is a physical example of a spiritual reality in the New Testament. So before we get to our passage this morning, I want to go back to the book of Ezekiel. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to paraphrase. Um, because it's one of those passages God thought, God thought we needed to know in order to understand what Jesus is going to say in John chapter 3. So in Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 25... God is describing how He planned to redeem His people. And I want you to pay attention to how many times God says, I will. Okay? He said, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. 
and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give, it, give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So that's how God promised he was going to save his people. Now, quick pop quiz. What in that passage did we do? So that's, that's, that's how God was going to save his people. However, God had this thing where, with his prophets where um, after he said something like that, occasionally he would have them act that out. So, for example, in, in, uh, God told Hosea, the prophet Hosea, how he was going to love and woo his people even though they were prostituting themselves to other gods. And, and luckily, you know, Hosea uh, got the wonderful gift of acting that out. And so God told Hosea to go and marry this woman named Gomer. The problem wasn't that her name was Gomer. The problem was that she was also a prostitute. But even after, even after Hosea had married her, she still returned back to her life as a prostitute. And so God, wanting to act out what he said to Hosea, told Hosea to go again yet and buy her again from her owner and marry her again. That was maybe one of the less fun ones where God had the prophet acted out. But back in, in Ezekiel, you see, just saying that he was going to clean up his people and give them a new heart, that wasn't enough for God. No, he wanted to give us a physical example of why he was making these promises and what it was going to look like. So in the very next chapter, in Ezekiel 37, God took Ezekiel to this great plain that was... was full of completely dried out, desiccated bones. Picture kind of like, like an old uh, battlefield where, where after you know, some number of years, it's just littered with skeletons. So, so while Ezekiel is looking at this vast plain of bones, God asks him a trick question. He said, can these bones live? Ezekiel at this point was keen to God's trick questions, so he answered rightly, and he said, I don't know. <laughs> Seriously, that's what he said. He said, that's above my pay grade, God, but you know. He said, because right now, Ezekiel's looking at these bones, and he says, right now, even, even Miracle Max knows that these people are not mostly dead. They're just bones. So God told Ezekiel to speak the word of the Lord to these bones, and as soon as he, as he did, Ezekiel said he heard a great rattling and the bones began to come together and sinew and flesh began to cover them. But he said they were just bodies. They didn't, they didn't have life in them. And, 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 and so God told Ezekiel to do it again, to speak the word of the Lord to them. And sure enough, as soon as he did, Ezekiel said the Spirit of God came from the four winds, which is the Bible's way of saying he didn't know where it came from. And, and, and they entered these bodies, and the Spirit entered the bodies, and they lived, and he said they were an exceedingly great army. Then God said in Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 13, and again, I want you to notice the I wills. God said, these are my people. And you shall know, verse 13, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. 
and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Now don't worry, our last song isn't going to be like dim bones, dim bones. But I want you to, I want to make sure you have this story in your mind because God is preparing us through Ezekiel to understand what Jesus is going to say in John chapter 3. But here's the thing. Whether it's Ezekiel or John chapter 3 or anywhere else in the Bible that, that talks like this, where God does his work, God didn't have to do any of this. He didn't have to do any of this. He didn't have to explain any of these things to prepare us for Jesus or to send Jesus or, or, or any more than he had to put life back into these bones. Like most of us probably would, God could have just said, you guys aren't worth it, I'm out of here, losers. And, and we could have just evaporated from existence. But he didn't, did he? No, he didn't just abandon us. He didn't just leave us to ourselves. But, but like Paul said in, in Ephesians chapter 2, but God, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. So that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. This morning I want to tell you about the love of God. This Christmas Eve morning, I want us to put ourselves into the shoes of a man named Nicodemus and listen to Jesus tell us how much God so loved the world. So look at the first part of our passage, John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you will hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, what Jesus is saying in these first eight verses is this. Let me sum it up, and then I'm going to explain to you how, how it means that. What Jesus is saying is that God loves you enough, God loves you enough to tell you you're broken. God loves you enough to tell you you are broken. Now go back to verse 1 because understanding who Nicodemus was has everything to do with understanding how this passage is about God's love. First, in verse 1, John describes Nick as a, as a Pharisee. Now, we don't have a very good view of Pharisees because of how often Jesus condemned their hypocrisy and self-righteousness and all that sort of thing. But, but he doesn't do that here with Nick because not all Pharisees were like that. There were good Pharisees. There were Pharisees who were serious about their faith, and, and the, Nick is one of those. He genuinely wanted to be a godly man. But notice John also describes him as a ruler of the Jews at the end of verse 1, which means he was one of only 20 or so men who were the, the religious leaders of, of Israel. 
think of like uh, our Congress and our Supreme Court rolled into one group. However, glance down to verse 10. Uh, Jesus answered him and says, Are you the teacher of Israel? In other words, not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee and a leader, but he was also one of the premier teachers, uh, uh, scholars of Israel. But most importantly, in order to understand what Jesus is saying, notice how what Nick says in verse 2 shows he genuinely wanted to understand Jesus. He's being genuine. We know you can't do this unless you're from God. He wasn't trying to trap Jesus like the other Pharisees did. He was genuinely curious. In other words, putting all this together, John's saying Nick was not only immersed in the Old Testament, but he genuinely wanted to know what Jesus was about. So so this extremely well-educated Genuinely devoted man opens up this conversation with Jesus with some small talk. You know, we know you're of the, you know, we're from God. You couldn't do these signs if if you weren't from God. Jesus wasn't having it. It's one of the coolest, I think this is what I love about Jesus. Look at verse 3. Nicodemus says, we know you can't do this because, we know you could only do this because you were from God. And Jesus is like, Yeah, unless you're born again, you can't go to heaven. Jesus just completely cuts off this well-educated man, immediately sweeps everything about who he was off the table, and says, look, Nick, I know you're being genuine, so let me just cut to the chase. You ain't good enough. You, You have to be born again. You have to be completely remade. You have to start over in order to even have a chance of seeing the kingdom of God. Now, now notice that little footnote in your Bible right after it says born again. You'll have a little number or a letter or something. And it'll tell you that that phrase born again literally means born from above. In other words, Jesus is telling this this highly educated, sincere leader, not only that even he needed to be remade, but he wasn't going to have anything to do with it. It had to come from above. Any Ezekiel, I will bells ringing yet? To put what Jesus is saying into Ezekiel's language, Jesus is saying that unless God intervenes and does something to you, Nick, Even you are just a pile of dry bones, spiritually speaking. But Jesus isn't done. Look at what else he tells Nick in verse 6 through 8. He tells him, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel. Like, this isn't crazy what I'm saying to you, Nick. You must be born again. In other words, Jesus is saying, You must be born again from above because just like physical birth people cannot born themselves again in the spirit just like your physical birth you didn't born yourself you you can't do that spiritually either think about it this way a while ago i was watching this movie about the the old mountain men in the 1800s and in way far north of north america and one of the scenes that caught my eyes was when these trappers had this interaction with these Native Americans. 
Now, certainly that was normal for them. But what caught my eye was they made a point of, of describing how this one old Native American had never seen a white man before. And, and how it was this, you know, very new thing. And it's not a big deal that an Indian hadn't seen a white man before. I'm sure that happened all the time. The point, though, what it, what it caused me to think was this. How much our lives are determined by when and where we're born. Think about it. Because of when and where this Native American man was born, and it's a movie, it was fake, but take it for real, he spent his entire life without a single influence outside of his tribe. And it made me think about how much when and where we're born has to do with whether we hear the gospel or anything about God for that matter. Like, think about some random Mayan person from the 6th century. How, how did they hear about God? Think about some random, you know, Chinese person from the 10th century. How, did, how, did, how, how they were born into that culture, how much it had to do with how their lives went. Now, I'm not saying that it was hopeless for them. That's not my point. The Bible's clear that there's plenty of evidence in nature alone for everyone to know about God. That's not my point. My point is this. Think about how much... Not only your life is determined by when and where you are born, but more importantly, think about how much you had to do with it. None of us sat there in non-existence like, you know, I think the 21st century is going to be pretty cool. They have microwaves and, you know, hot pockets and things like that. I don't want to, you know, live in a castle. So I'm going to, no, none of us said that. We just were there. Think about how much you had to do with where you, where and when you were born. The answer is nothing. It was all God. So, so think about how much God's decision dictates so much about a person's life. Think about what it means that God decided you would come into existence at a time and place where you would hear the gospel clearly and frequently. Think about what it means that God decided you would be born into a time and place where you could be here this morning hearing truth that will determine your eternity. You ever thought about that? About how much when and where you were born has to do with your life and how you have nothing to do with it. Because listen, here's what Jesus is saying. We have as much to do with our spiritual new birth as we did our natural birth. I say that again, we have as much to do with our spiritual new birth as we did with our natural birth. Meaning, in our natural state, we have no more chance of wanting Jesus than the bones in Ezekiel had of getting up and walking around. Spiritually, every one of us is like those dry bones until we're reborn from above, until God replaces our heart of stone and gives us His Spirit. Pastor named Skip Ryan put it this way. He said, It doesn't matter who you are. Being born again was not a decision you made. Whoever you are, however you came to Christ, you have been the object of God's supernatural work on your heart. In other words, just like Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, and just like those bones in Ezekiel, we weren't mostly dead. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. But God. But God interceded. And moreover, just like Ezekiel said, Jesus says in verse 8, the wind blows where it wants to. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from. Meaning, not only do we not have anything to do with our spiritual birth, but we don't know why or when or where God's going to do it. 
And if you look in the Bible for the answer of why you do that, God, you know what the answer is? Don't ask. Don't ask. Who are you, old man, to ask me why I do these things? I'm not joking. That's literally the black and white answer. So I wonder this morning, is, is that wind blowing through you right now? Is God interceding in your life, perhaps involuntarily? Is the, the holy wind of God's Spirit blowing through you right now and speaking life to your dead heart? Because just like Jesus said to Nicodemus, God loves you enough to tell you you're broken. So you have to be born again. But that's not all Jesus wants to tell you. That'd be pretty sad if that's where he left it. Like you're a loser and deal with it. But, but he didn't. Look at what Nicodemus says in verse 9. Jesus tells him he has to be born again. And Nicodemus' response was a resounding, huh? Like, how can these things be? So, like I just said, if there's anybody who had what it takes to understand what Jesus was saying, it was Nick. I mean, he's literally the guy who taught other Jews about the coming Messiah. That was his job. In fact, all over rabbinical writing from Jesus' time, writings Nick certainly would have been aware of, was this this Hebrew phrase that that went, um, a new convert to Judaism is like a newborn child. But Nick tells Jesus, how can these things be? So if there's anyone in the world capable of understanding what Jesus was saying, it was Nick. So how is he saying, how can these things be? Well, look at verse 10 through 13, where Jesus tells Nick that God loves you enough, not only to tell you you need to be born again, but to send you the only person who can explain it. He says in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except, the, uh, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus says, look, Nick, I want to tell you some heavenly things, but you've never been to heaven. I have. I want to tell you some heavenly things, some spiritual things, but you can't understand them because you're still dead. He says in verse 11, we speak of what we know because, listen, he says in verse 13, I'm the only one who's been there. I'm the only one who's descended from heaven. In other words, Jesus Christ is the only person who can tell us these things. He's the only person who can testify to the truth of God's love because he's the only person who has been with God. Only person who has been in heaven. Look, this is not only what Christmas is all about, but this is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. If you want to get to God, every other religion gives you a set of rules, a list of things you need to do, accomplishments you have to achieve, places you have to go if you want to get to God. Every other religion in the world has a God who remains in whatever his special place is, sits in their heaven and says, I ain't going anywhere, I'm God. If you losers want to get to me, here, you got to do this and you got to do that, and here's how much money you have to give me. It usually ends up with money some way. And that's how you get to their gods, but not our God. No, not our God. Brothers and sisters, our God loves us enough to leave his throne in heaven and come to earth. Come to earth to be born, not as a king, but as a peasant. 
Not to live in a palace, but to be born in the mud. To live with the lowest of us and, listen, and for the worst of us. God loves you so much that He sent you the only person who can explain your problem. So Jesus tells Nick, I'm going to lay some truth on you, bud. You can't understand until you're born again yet. But when you, when you are born again, these seeds are going to germinate and you're going to understand what I'm saying. And praise God, we know from the end of John that Nick did believe. And all these things did make sense. But what, what did Jesus know that Nick couldn't understand until he was born again? Well, this is the part we came here for. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works be, should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, I'm going to go through this slow because this is the part our culture gets all wrong. You see, first, one thing our culture has done is they have isolated John 3.16 from its context and turned it into this decision that you need to make. And don't get me wrong, your decision is very much a part of this. That that part is true. John 3.16 is about a decision you need to make. But the part our culture leaves out is everything Jesus just said to Nick. The part about how the only people capable of making that decision are those who have been born from above by the sovereign intervention of God into their spiritually dead lives. So, So let me be really, really clear here. You are not born again after you believe in Jesus. No, Jesus says you have to be born again in order to believe in Him. You have to be born again in order to believe in Jesus. And again, Nick's a perfect example. He's a perfect case study for this truth. If there's anyone who knew enough and wanted to believe enough, it was this guy. But he hadn't been born again yet. He was just a pile of dry bones until God intervened. This leads to the second thing our culture misses about John 3.16, and that's Ezekiel 37. Now, I'm not saying that John 3.16 is inherently tied to Ezekiel 37, but our culture completely leaves out the Old Testament pattern that is symbolized in Ezekiel 37. The Old Testament pattern that God's people never had a role in their salvation, except as Jonathan Edwards put it, the, the sin that made it, made it necessary. They didn't save themselves from Egypt. God did. They didn't save themselves from Assyria. God did. They didn't save themselves from Babylon. God did. So, so just like every other time in the Old Testament, and in perfect line with the dry bones in Ezekiel, what Jesus is saying in verse 14 through 18 is this. Saints, listen. Not only does God love you enough 
to tell you you're broken and to send someone to explain it. But God loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to do what you couldn't. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to do what you couldn't. Verse 16 says God loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to live a perfect life in the place of the ones that we've ruined. And not only to live for you, but verse 14 says God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you as well, to be lifted up on the cross, to face the judgment you deserve. Why? Why would God do that? Because, verse 17, 18 says, you are already condemned, already under judgment. Meaning, listen, mankind is not morally neutral until they make a decision to believe in Jesus. No. The reason verse 18 says Jesus didn't come to condemn the world is because he didn't need to. The, the natural state of mankind until they're born again is condemned. But, but, God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to do what you couldn't. Which means lastly, and here is the most important thing I want you to see about God's love that culminates in John 3, 16. Here's the part that... that that is so much greater than a cliche John 3.16 sign at a baseball game. Picture yourself in heaven in the midst of millions and millions of people worshiping and praising Jesus, glorifying Him. It's loud for some hundreds of thousands of years until the MC of heaven says, you know, gets up on stage. Thank you, Jesus. Appreciate that. Why don't you go ahead and have a seat? We're going to we're going to go ahead and pull Joe up here and recognize him for the wonderful decision he made when he was dead in his trespasses and sins. Joe, you want to come on up here and tell us how you were able to make that spiritually righteous decision while you were spiritually dead? You ain't going to hear that in heaven. Ain't one of us getting up on the throne to be recognized for anything. Now, Ephesians 2 doesn't say even when we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, we made the right decision. No, just like he promised in Ezekiel, God said, I made you alive together with Christ. And why did he do that? Why did God make us alive together with Christ? Was it because of your, your banging personality? Was it because of your incredible sense of humor? No. What, was, it, was, it, was it because... Was it because you, he knew deep down inside you were actually a good person? No. Brothers and sisters, it was because of the great love with which he loved us that God made us alive with Christ. There's a very popular song out there right now by a popular worship singer that goes like this. You provide the fire and I'll provide the sacrifice. You provide the spirit, and I'll open up inside. I don't think you could get more off than, than, than that. The Bible literally says, you provide the fire, and I'll provide the sacrifice. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is going to move into you like a holy home invasion, tie up the, the bad part of you, frog march him to the front door and kick him out so he can set up shop. You don't open up anything. So brothers and sisters, I, if you walk out of here with anything this morning, I want you to leave here with this because this is what Christmas is all about. 
Listen, when we get the right view of John 3.16, when we reckon that we were born again only by the sovereign intervention of God, uh, the, God the Father's loving intrusion into our broken lives, when we get there, John 3.16 ceases to be about the great decision you made and becomes all about the massive weight of God's love. Now the emphasis falls off of whoever believes and lands squarely on for God so loved. Now, brothers and sisters, now the praise and the glory and the worship in heaven is where it should be. God didn't have to do any of this, but he did. He didn't have to send us Jesus, but he did. Jesus didn't have to do everything for us, but he did. God sent us Jesus Christ to, to live the lives that we couldn't, to be slaughtered and to rise again from the dead so he can make us alive together with him, which means now, saints, now we have eternity to praise God the Father for the great love he showed us when he sent Jesus Christ to do what, he, what we couldn't. That's what Christmas is about. It's about praise. Now, now we can praise God because he's the defender of the defenseless. Because he's the righteousness of the unrighteous. And because he's the prince of peace to, perver to perverted people like you and I. That's the God who loves you. The God whose love has no limits, whose mercy has no measure, whose, whose salvation has no strings, whose grace has no guile, whose deliverance has no deficiency. That's the God who made you alive. Because he is the just and the justifier. He is the creator and the comforter. He is the sovereign and the sympathizer. sympathizer. He is the great I am and the giver of life. He is the majestic Messiah and the merciful master. That's the God who loves you so much. He is the deliverer of judgment and the bringer of mercy. He is the creator of life and the destroyer of sin because he's the victor over death and the one who died. He's the shepherd of his sheep and the lamb who was slain. Listen, this is what Christmas is all about. It's about the one who wants for nothing, yet gives us everything. It's about the majesty of heaven who was laid in a manger. It's about the creator of man who was born in the mud. It's about the one who loved the world so much that he laid down his life. That's the God who loves you so much. So what should we do with this information? What should we do with this life-changing, eternity-determining information about how much God loves you? I think we should go find a mountain to tell it on. Stand with me, please. Let's sing.